0: Acts 4, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God. Father we thank you for our church. Uh, We thank you for uh, the community that you've uh, put us into here, your family, and we pray this morning that uh, you would unite us uh, behind a common vision and that we might go forward in the power of your spirit. Uh, and see your kingdom come, for Christ's sake. Amen. So, it's Vision Sunday, and uh, I'm seeking to um, explain, on the basis of this Bible passage, what the vision for our church is. Perhaps you feel, as I do, that there are a number of perplexing things uh, happening in our society at the moment, many perplexing things uh, not least the erosion of um, many of the values, the Christian values that we, in which we seek to bring up our children, but perhaps you're perplexed also about who you're going to vote for. Uh, perhaps you're perplexed by, as I was, that the, um, the world, at least in the air, can be brought to a complete standstill by a volcano. Good to have our church warden back after her prolonged holiday in France, by the way. Welcome back, Vicky. Uh, But for many people, I'm sure that the last uh, few weeks, and perhaps it continues in some parts of the world, have been both uncomfortable and uncertain, as uh, over three million people have had folks stuck in different parts of the world. Of course, life is much more uncertain and perplexing for many others in our world, those who live on uh, rubbish dumps in shanty towns in various parts of the world. Uh, of course, it's utterly grim. But nevertheless, our world was thrown into disarray by, a volcanic, by volcanic ash. Perhaps you've also been a little perplexed if you've been here in church for the last two Sundays by the messages that you've heard from this pulpit. Simon Gillibeau's uh, radical call to discipleship uh, was uncomfortable for many. Tom Benyon's challenge to political involvement last week may have left others feeling uh, a little unsure about their political involvement. if you weren't here, if you've been away on holiday, you might want to listen to those uh, challenging sermons on the website. Before I get to the vision, let me lull you uh, into a little bit of um, false sense of security with the election joke that I was shared with uh, this week, which I rather enjoyed. Um, A member of parliament was tragically struck down in an accident and arrives in heaven to be greeted by God with the statement, we don't get many of you up here, and we're not quite sure what to do with you. And a member of parliament said, well, it should be very straightforward, just let me into heaven. And God said, well, it's not quite as simple as that, so what we're going to do is going to give you a day in hell and a day in heaven, and then you can decide, because you've got the confidence of the people, Uh, they trust your judgment, you can decide whether you wish to be in heaven or hell. So, the MP is first of all sent down in the escalator to hell, and he has a a day in hell. And to his surprise, he finds it remarkably congenial. There is a wonderful golf course. The devil is a smiling, welcoming host, a bit like the person who greeted you on the door here this morning, and and to his surprise, he gets a lunch of caviar and champagne. In fact, it is a truly wonderful experience. Uh, so, he goes back up in the escalator, back up into heaven, and he has his second day in heaven. And uh, it's rather as he predicted with a lot of music and a lot of worship, uh, uh, and it's, it's very peaceful and fun, but it's not quite as exciting as hell, to be honest. So at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the day, God, God says to him, well, wh- which do you choose? Which would you rather have, hell or heaven? And he says, well, rather to my surprise, I enjoyed hell rather more than heaven, so I think I'm going to choose hell. So God says, fine. So he gets on the escalator, down he goes into hell, and he opens the escalator door, the elevator door, and he walks into hell, and he sees a ghastly rubbish dump with people in rags, starving, and utterly miserable, and wailing. And he thinks to himself, this isn't isn't at all what I expected. So he says to the devil, what's going on here? Uh, Yesterday, there was champagne, and caviar, and golf, and wonderful, smiling host, now utter misery. And the devil said to me, yeah, yeah, yesterday we were campaigning, today you voted. (laughs) But we must try to leave our cynicism behind. (laughs) What is the vision uh, for uh, St. Andrews? What What are we trying to do here which is kind of unique to us as a church? And to help me, I turn to this passage in Acts chapter 4. You might like to keep it open, uh, 1096, page 1096. And I chose this passage uh, for two reasons. One, because it gives us a clear picture of what the church was doing in its most unformed and early days. And it, it, when they were actually right in the, um, in the earliest enthusiasm of the resurrection and the Pentecostal experience. It shows us the most dynamic um, part, I suppose, in a way of the church's life, an astonishing growth from just a handful to several thousand. And secondly, it must have been a time when those first disciples, dynamic and life-changing though their experiences were, they must have been uh, very perplexed by the events going on around them. They must have been quite unsure what to do. Uh, you, we read about this uh, here, and um, we can see that even, even in this situation, uh, they've been thrown into prison uh, – Peter and John are just emerging from prison uh, – and maybe we can learn something from their example as to what, in perplexing times, their response was as a church and learn something from the first century that we can apply in the twenty-first century. And we see that the church was growing rapidly. In uh, chapter 2, we've seen how, um, uh, how there was an, an astonishing change in the way in which they uh, lived their lives and how they shared their possessions and, and what they did together. It was an extraordinary time as the gospel of the risen Jesus was preached in the power of the Holy Spirit for the very first time. Uh, this had not happened before in the history uh, of the world. And only a few weeks have passed since the first disciples witnessed the execution, the reappearance, and then the disappearance of their Lord and Master, events that we, of course, sanitized. We've got quite used to that. We think about crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension as kind of events in the Christian year. But imagine what it was like for them then, pretty exciting, but pretty confusing. We get get quite perplexed uh, seeing Conrad and, and Sharon here, Conrad gives leadership to our alpha, uh, our alpha course, and each time we have the Alpha course, some of you uh, would have just come through it, we have people who are new Christians, and we get quite perplexed as to uh, what to do with them next, how to take them on uh, to the next stage, and we've got loads of people trained up, we've got numerous number of resources, and we still get in a muddle about it as uh, not quite sure what the right thing to do. It Imagine what it was like for these disciples. Hundreds, perhaps thousands, were professing faith for the first time, and they had nobody trained up to disciple them. They didn't know what to do at all. It had never happened before. They themselves, as I say, faced daily arrest, and here we see them emerging from jail. They must have been unsure quite what the right thing to do was. Certainly, Jesus had promised them the Holy Spirit who would guide them into all truth, and that is precisely what we see happening here, the Holy Spirit working in the fellowship to guide them into all truth. But it was early days in the school of discipleship. Well, let's see what they did. It seems to me that their mission statement is pretty clear, and I think that we can learn from their priorities. First of all, uh we can see that they were committed to praise verse 24 uh, when they heard this they raised their voices together in prayer to god sovereign lord they said you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it they praise god for his sovereign power now that's really important being perplexed there is stuff that we don't understand uh Means that we can, does not mean that we lose confidence in God's rule. We may not understand, but He does understand. We need to hang, hold together the fact that we may be perplexed and uncertain. We don't have all the answers, but we can trust in a God who does have all the answers, sovereign God who made the heaven and the earth. The volcanic ash should remind us of man's. Uh, relative weakness, but God's sovereignty. I mean, look look at that for a minute. I mean, I've been reflecting upon this a little bit. Iceland. Think about what. What do we know about Iceland? Iceland blows up, and the air traffic in the world comes to a halt. Until last week, what did you know about Iceland? What did you know about Iceland? I suspect that what you knew was that it had hot springs. I suspect you knew that. You may have known that it's got some of the best salmon fishing in the world, I knew that. You also would probably have known that they acquired, stroke, stole perhaps not, uh, millions of our money, maybe you knew that. We don't seem to be struggling to get it back off them in one way or another. And what do we get in return from Iceland? Just a few cheap frozen fish fingers in, in a dodgy white van. And. Uh, And then an unpronounceable mountain blows up, and suddenly, suddenly the election's not on the front page, not the first item in the news. Uh, Suddenly, without seeming to know how it's happened, Nick Clegg becomes favorite to be prime minister. I mean, how perplexing is this? Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth. We certainly can't make any sense of it. We trust that you can. Now that, I'm being frivolous deliberately, but it's an important point, isn't it? These guys had been thrown into prison at the very moment when the kingdom of God was breaking into their world, had broken into their world. They're perplexed, and yet they know that God is in charge. Really important. Knowing that it's God's world and that His rule is breaking into our society, and they knew that for certain because they were witnesses of the resurrection, they had seen death defeated because Jesus had emerged from the grave as evidence of the new rule of God, the new kingdom breaking into this world. They knew that, and they turn in praise to Psalm 2, a messianic psalm. And they see that all through history, men and women have set themselves against God and His anointed ones, thinking that they can run the world better than Him, until of course a volcano or something like it happens. And their prayer is that the Word would be spoken. Why? Why do they pray that? Because the Word of God holds back the tide of man's rebellion, which threatens to sweep us all away. Nothing else does, nothing. By prayer alone, God's kingdom comes. So, they're a praising community and they're a praying community. And thirdly, they pray that the Word of God will go forward. They are a proclaiming community. And as the great news of Jesus' life, death, and and resurrection is proclaimed, they expect to see in signs and wonders and conversions evidence of his rule breaking into people's lives. And as you read the Acts of the Apostles, that, of course, is precisely what you see. But not just praise, prayer, and proclamation, not just pie in the sky when you die, but stake on the plate while you wait. They were committed to shared prosperity. Uh, Verse 34, there was nobody in need, no needy persons among them. What a remarkable statement that is. And let me assure you, I'm sure you know, that in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was as characterized by the presence of poor people, needy people, as our own global society is today. There were slaves who owned nothing and there were numerous extremely poor and suffering people but here in this new community this new christian community we're told there were no needy people Uh, everybody was looked after everybody's prosperity was looked after by the community it was a sharing community so that all would prosper in every sense well that's a thrilling description of a dynamic, Holy Spirit-inspired new way of life, praise, prayer, proclamation, and prosperity. And it's that pattern, I believe, that we are called to follow. So, we will be a church which praises God, if we can move on to the second set of slides. We will be a church that praises God. Worship is to be a central feature of our lives here at St. Andrews. We will continue to worship God together as we assemble as a church. And furthermore, we will maintain the distinctives of each of our four services, thus enabling people with with different preferences from different backgrounds and traditions to feel part of our community here. This is a really important, unique thing about us. I had a a long journey with one of my uh, friends who's vicar of one of the other big churches here in Oxford this week. And we had a long conversation, uh, as we do. We enjoy uh, really close friendships together in the city. And he said to me how it was really important in their church that every service bore the same kind of characteristic. People, every service was basically uh, much the same. So if people go to that particular church, they know whatever service they go to, that it's going to be pretty much what they expect. Here we very deliberately have different styles of worship. I'm not saying one's better than the other, I'm just saying that that is a characteristic of St Andrews. If you come to the 8 o'clock service, it will be very different from coming to the 6 o'clock. Even if you come to the 9.30 as opposed to the 11.15 service, it is very different. And that's a deliberate policy that we will aim to continue, so that as many people as possible from different backgrounds can feel at home here. But of course, a praising community, a worshiping community, is not just about assembling together. We must also follow the words of St. Paul in Romans twelve and present our bodies as living sacrifices 24-7. In a sense, how we worship God Monday to Saturday is more important than what we do here. I always kind of feel that if you're gonna sin, you know, badly, best to do it here, really, because we're in the business of forgiving you here. You know, when you sin at work or, you know, on Wednesday evening or whatever, much worse much worse. Here, Here is the place for sin. If you want to sin, do it here, I suggest. But do it nicely if you can. That would be helpful. But you, I hope you get the point that I mean, that how we praise God, how we honor God, how we give God his worth Monday to Saturday is absolutely crucially important. And I hope that we as a church and as individuals will be those who honor God in the way in which we live our lives. So I humbly suggest that a church that worships well becomes a church surrendered to God's rule. A church that worship well is a church that is surrendered to God's rule. We will, I hope, also be a church that prays, and I guess that we do this in a variety of ways. For some, prayer in the context of the assembled church is most helpful, led by a designated intercessor, as Jonathan will lead us in prayer later in this service. For others, of course, it's the daily discipline of a quiet time. In a set-aside place and time that is most important. Others find prayer helpful in partnerships or triplets or in house groups. Still others love the regular church prayer meetings, which are a part of our weekly life and, of course, our monthly church prayer meetings. And perhaps at different times in our Christian life, there are different ways to pray that suit us best. Perhaps variety has a lot to commend itself in keeping us going in our prayer lives. As a church, we must pray, but let's not be prescriptive about how we pray. Uh, For many, for instance, the Teze service that we've initiated uh, from time to time on a Sunday evening and hoping to do a little bit more has become a really crucial prayerful time uh, in their lives. Let's uh, recognize that that variety is valid and legitimate. I've recently um, uh, been uh, reading a book called Never Silent by Thaddeus Barnum, and it has reminded me of the spiritual battle in which we are all engaged in prayer. Barnum, in this book, he compares uh, very powerfully, actually, the appalling genocide that occurred in Rwanda in the 1990s, 1996, I think, or 1994, to the spiritual genocide that is being exercised against orthodox believers in the Episcopal Church in America, the so-called revisionist. He himself is an Episcopal minister in America. And he talks uh, powerfully, making a, a, using the, uh, the illustration of Rwanda and talking about the spiritual battle as opposed to the physical battle that happened in, in Rwanda. And he makes the point that the root of both battles, whether it's a battle for survival in Rwanda against appalling evil, or whether it's a battle for... Uh, the survival of the gospel in the Episcopal Church in America, that it is a spiritual battle. It's a struggle against the the spiritual evil. And he makes the point that in that battle, the enemy comes against us with his great weapons, sin, ignorance, and disease. The great weapons that the devil uses, sin, ignorance, and disease. And in Ephesians 6, Paul reminds us that we stand against his evil schemes, fully armed with the spiritual armor described in Ephesians 6, but praying in the power of the Spirit as they did here when they came out of jail, praying in the power of the Spirit, and the house there was shaken. How wonderful it would be if we as a Christian community here at St. Andrews, we as the Christian community in this country were praying so powerfully that our society was shaken and revival should come in our nation. It is a spiritual battle. Prayer is not an optional extra for the Christian. It's, it's how we breathe. It's what we do. We must be a praying church. But we will also be not just a church that praises and prays, but a church which proclaims. In Acts chapter 2 verse 42, we see that there was devotion amongst the believers, Luke writes, Devotion to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And here in chapter 4, we see the result of that. Because they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, because they received teaching, they were filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Both public proclamation of the word of God and private personal evangelism, sharing their faith one-to-one with people proclaiming openly. In this case, they got into trouble for doing it before the Sanhedrin, proclaiming the Word of God uh, publicly. They spoke boldly. And it is vital in a healthy church that we are those who study the apostles' teaching. So we have something like the Moore Course, for instance, getting to grips with the Bible, which is so important. And we have a vibrant prayer ministry so that we can expect God to be moving powerfully in people's lives. It's vital to combine good Bible teaching from the pulpit with passionate passionate, uh, preaching and passionate prayer and an expectation that God will move. I was really touched at 8 o'clock this morning uh, when I did a sort of 10-minute potted version of this sermon that an elderly gentleman who uh, comes to the 8 o'clock service uh, every week came up to me afterwards, and he thanked me for the sermon and he said, do you know, Andrew, I've been coming to St. Andrews for four years now, and I've learned more in four years here, just coming to the 8 o'clock service, uh, than I did in 32 years in the church that I used to attend. I find that a deeply encouraging thing to say. <laughs> I was a bit worried about the Church of England, but nevertheless, you know, if, it, it shows how important it is that we teach the Bible as faithfully as we can. But have you noticed that we are all different? We are very different indeed. We do not all have the same gifts and passions. But between us as a community, we have a large number of them. So we need to love one another. We need to recognize each other's distinctives. And as the body of Christ at St. Andrews, in word and spirit for some passionate prayer in the context of a prayer ministry, will be the most exciting thing. For others, attendance at the Moore course and really understanding how the Bible came into existence and what it means will be much the most exciting thing. I rejoice in that diversity in St. Andrews. I rejoice in it. A unity, a diversity which creates unity under the Word of God and respects differences. I think that is crucially important to us. I think it's a, a value that we must hang on to all that we can but it is it is built upon a confidence in proclaiming and teaching god's word as you know i believe passionately that we have a primary uh, opportunity and responsibility in proclaiming the word here to reach the next generation uh, of young people i think that that is something by god's grace that he has given to us you don't need me really to remind you of that at this service because so many of you bring your children and uh, grandchildren to this service because you long for them uh, to grow up in the Christian faith and you feel, with all our inadequacies, and of course we're very far from perfect, that we can offer something in that area. There are many other important ministries that we have, to overseas students, which is going so well, to our elderly people, which is flourishing at lunch club, numerous stuff, a 20s and 30s group that's absolutely terrific on Thursday evening, all sorts of other things, but we have, I believe, as a church, a very particular responsibility and opportunity to proclaim the gospel uh, to the next generation. So I suggest that we must be a church that proclaims the gospel in the 21st century, and that will mean not only in due course, I pray, that we will have the opportunity to plant new churches, but that we must also have buildings that enable us to do that well. Southside will have to go in due course anyway, not least because in the last uh, week we have discovered again that it's about the most insecure building in the world, with two major break-ins uh, there. Go and have a look at the damage if you doubt my word. We simply cannot leave it there ad infinitum. It is insecure, and it will, it will not have planning permission for very long. We are at the moment under siege. Perhaps it's a good reminder of the spiritual warfare we're in from a series of uh, orchestrated break-ins uh, into Southside, which is both an irritant as well as being costly. So we're going to have to do something about that sooner uh, rather than later. Lastly, fourthly, we will be a church which prospers. A church which prospers. I'm looking at the section of the uh, in Acts 4 which talks about the believers sharing their possessions together. Of course, one of the fastest growing but I believe profoundly mistaken sections of the church around the world, is the so-called prosperity gospel, with which many of you will be familiar. Come to Jesus, they say, and all your problems will be solved. The gospel offers you Jesus and health, wealth, and happiness. And of course, like all heresies, there's no point in having a heresy that is blatantly untrue, Uh, it has some truth in it. The early church really looked after those who were struggling. People in great poverty who come to Christ do often leave behind some of the things that kept them in poverty – addictions, idleness, promiscuity, criminal activity, etc. Often new Christians aspire to a higher standard of living and an education for themselves and particularly for their children than they had before they were converted. And for sure, we will see this happening here in, in, on our doorstep as some of our dear friends on the Cuttslow estate who have been so marginalized and so disadvantaged. As they come to Christ, we will begin to see them prospering in a way that they have not done before. But to jump from that to an expectation that it is God's business to make us rich is, of course, Wrong. Jesus nowhere promised that his followers would be rich. On the contrary, he promised that they would have persecutions and trouble. He said that we must take up our cross and follow him. There was anything but a promise of financial prosperity. But I would expect a church like St. Andrew's, a relatively prosperous church, of course, to prosper in the sense of being like Barnabas in this story, Uh, the kind of church That brings its best to the Lord and shares it with one another so that there are no needy people among us but also with the community which God has set us in the midst of we have clothes that we do not need we have houses that we can fling open even if it is at times a bit uncomfortable how about in due course uh, having in your house uh, one of our parish assistants or apprentices when we have them why not take a risk or two. Maybe you could uh, actually not have the language student who pays whatever pounds a week for that room. Maybe it could be used for God. Who knows? We have money that we can give away, as this early church community did. Do we have hearts? I hope we do, uh, as Simon Gillibo challenges. Hearts that are ready to embrace risk in order to have the life that Jesus offers. We are to be a giving and a sharing church, for a giving and a sharing church is a prospering church. So I humbly suggest those four uh, P's for my vision summary today. A praising church becomes a surrendered church. A praying church becomes a winning church. A proclaiming church becomes a growing church. And a prospering church becomes an attractive church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the church, and we pray that you would help us to move forward together. May we be a church that honors you as the sovereign Lord. May we be a church that depends upon you in the spiritual battle. May we be a church that is faithful to the proclamation of the gospel in our generation. And may we be a church that prospers and shares the good things that you give to us so that there are no needy ones among us. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.